word. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the more difficult things about being a Christian who loves uh, things like evangelism, who loves uh, the things of God, isn't really the questions that come from people, but it's determining whether or not those questions come to me in good faith. I've been receiving a number of questions that people have about the faith. Yes, uh, some uh, from this very congregation, people who may or may not, may not be uh, in this very room right now, and I absolutely love it. You have no idea how much I absolutely love uh, fielding uh, questions uh, hither and yon. I'm so grateful for them because the intent of those questions is not given to me with the idea that you're just looking for another excuse to revile the faith. Uh, That's one of the things that I absolutely love about receiving questions uh, from you who are in the pews, you who are online. So, brother, sister, keep them coming, you know what I'm saying? Your motive in asking the questions is that, that, that you do is not so that you can dispute these things and say, okay, see, see how Christianity is wrong? See how there's a contradiction here or something like that? That would kind of be like a thorn in my side of sorts. You ask these questions because you're genuinely interested in the things of God. Uh, you reach out uh, because you want to know how to contend for the faith that's once delivered for saints, and in doing so, you commend your, your, yourselves to the work of the Spirit of God as the Word of God bears, uh, bears its, its weight upon your very soul. You commend yourselves to the work of the Spirit in doing so. What we've seen thus far in this portion of the Gospel of John, basically from verses 52 uh, to 59, uh, 22 to 59, is what happens when questions are asked in bad faith. Uh, We know that it's in bad faith because of a couple of things. Firstly, they refuse to grasp what Jesus is teaching. And secondly, that they become increasingly disillusioned with Jesus' teachings. The entire time here, from virtually verses 22 through 59 here, they're looking for Jesus to play the role of a miracle worker. Someone who will just make bread for them so that they can move on. They're looking to him, verse 25, as a rabbi. They consider him as merely a rabbi who will teach them some stuff but not really have much to do with their lives. Uh, what they hear from him is not that he's just some miracle worker, though, that uh, he's, he's not there just to entertain them. 
Uh, what they hear from him, though, is, is not even that he's just some rabbi who can externally tell them what to do and what to think and then just walk away from him. Uh, he's much more than that. He's much more than that. What he desires is to abide in them and they in him. The bread that he offers as he speaks about it in verses 35 and following is analogous to the entirety of his ministry. In that you don't need him, sort of like a student needs their teacher. You need him, you need Jesus. This is his message to the crowd here. You need Jesus like you need your food. And so we'll be looking at this passage, the remainder of this passage, with, uh, uh, with this last appeal to our theme statement that's given in your bulletin. is Jesus is the bread of life, and that Jesus sustains us, and how we need to be sustained, not merely how we want to be sustained. And these uh, three points act as uh, three stepping stones, three guide stones to walk us through uh, this passage. Uh, point number one, disputing about Jesus. Verse 52 Then point number two, feeding on Jesus, and point number three, abiding in Jesus, drawn directly from uh, the passage. And to start us off on our first point, we uh, get the context a little bit from the verse uh, just before, uh, verse 51, Jesus says that the bread that he gives for the life of the world, the bread uh, that if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, the bread that comes from God is his flesh. And so... With that as our backdrop, verse 52, the Jews, who, by the way, had already been grumbling and uh, uh, complaining about uh, him up to this point, the Jews then disputed among themselves. So I'd like to notice uh, us to notice a couple of things in our first point on disputing about Jesus. The Jews disputed among themselves. Firstly, I'd like us to, to see the progressive stages of hostility in their unbelief. It's no longer the case that they're grumbling among themselves, like in verse 41. Now it's an open dispute. That's what the passage tells us. Uh, The word that's translated uh, dispute here is the only time that's used in the Gospel of John. And it describes something of their motives, something of the combative nature of their argumentation, that they, that they essentially want to go fisticuffs with Jesus based upon what he just said. Their reaction here runs parallel to Psalm 1. If you think of Psalm 1, uh, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, he does not stand in the, in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. It's a progression of their hostility against the things of God that's going on here, from walking to standing to sitting, from, a wicked, from someone who is a wicked person to a sinner to someone who openly scoffs. The wicked walk, the sinners stand, the scoffers sit. Here in John 6, we see a very similar thing going on. They go from confusion uh, in the verses above. They go from confusion, hey, uh, when did you get here? They ask Jesus. Notice they don't ask, how did you get here? Because then he would tell them, I walked on the water to to, to get here. It would entirely uh, rephrase and rebracket the entire uh, discussion here. They go from confusion uh, to grumbling. They grumble about the words of, uh, of Jesus to now they're being openly offended at the words of Jesus. You could see that throughout the chapter, uh, all they do is question Jesus. That's literally all that, all that they do. If you go through the chapter, 
There is not one single thing that they say to Jesus by statement or by question that has something to do with challenging Jesus' words. And when they don't, want, they don't get what they want from Jesus, uh, they become like children. Rather than listening to Jesus on his own terms like Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman did, they insist upon their expectations of him, and so they disregard his words, and they progress in their hostility towards them. Secondly, I'd like to point out what exactly it is that they take offense to. Verse 52, they say to themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They take offense at these words that Jesus is using to communicate about the entirety of his ministry. They take offense at his teaching, which is another way of saying that they take offense to his very person. They take offense to him himself. They take his words literally as though he's advocating some sort of cannibalism here. And this is sort of understandable with, uh, with, with, with what we're given about the crowds here, seeing as though they've only and merely and consistently refused to listen to what he's saying instead of actually having an open ear to his teaching. And by the way, uh, they know full well what they're doing here. They know full well uh, that Jesus doesn't mean this literally. The crowd here knows very well that Jesus doesn't mean this literally. They know full well that there is a deeper meaning to Jesus' words here. There is a deeper level of understanding based, if nothing else, upon the sheer intensity of the phrase that Jesus uses itself. It's a very intense statement that Jesus uses, and they know full well that there is a deeper level of meaning here, but their hostility is based upon their refusal to listen to the words of Jesus for what it means. Their repugnance at the words of Jesus is directed uh, at an intentional misunderstanding and recasting of Jesus' words so that they mean whatever it is that they want it to mean. In other words, they never at any point understood that is to stand under the actual intent of his teaching. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the text is rather subtle in the presentation of the crowd. You can see from their responses up to this point that they've only ever approached him in bad faith. They've only ever approached him in bad faith. That is to say, there's not a single time in this chapter where the people had a genuine question. You get these people as well. You will run into these people as well, brothers and sisters. Uh, Doubtless you will get people who will do this about almost any aspect of the Christian faith. You will run into these people. If you haven't, uh, then either you haven't been talking to the right people or you just simply haven't been talking to people. But people will do this. They have done this with me. Doubtless they do this with you and they will continue to do this about any aspect of the faith. It's never a bad thing to examine what you don't know about the things of God. It is a bad thing to question what you believe with an unbelieving motive. So what do we do when this happens? What what do we do when people intentionally misunderstand what we're saying? What do we do when people intentionally recast the words that are coming out of our mouths? Well, we follow the reaction of Jesus here. This is what we do. We follow the the reaction of Jesus here. What's his reaction? Well, essentially, everything that he says from here on out doesn't challenge them according to their misunderstandings. To quote that proverb, uh, he does not answer a fool according to his folly. 
lest they be wise in their own eyes, right? He doesn't, uh, he doesn't respond to them. He doesn't react to them according to their misunderstandings. What he does here is he aims at the goal of evangelism here. It's not his prerogative here to merely fix their thoughts about uh, misunderstanding what he says here. That's not his prerogative. His prerogative is to, pretend, is to present the intended outcome of the gospel, which is fellowship with Christ. He evades almost entirely what they say, and he sticks to the gospel to be the very last thing that they hear, because uh, really that's what they need, right? That's, that's really what, the, what, what they need. Uh, a good dose of the gospel, uh, them uh, coming to saving faith in Christ and, and the gospel will clear up any misunderstandings that they had before. So we need to see that so we can know how to respond to the scoffer in the day of testimony. And so we'll begin to look at this with the next point on feeding on Jesus from verses 53 to verse 55. Well, in verse 53, he starts with a warning. Jesus tells them, Truly, truly, I, said, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Frequently in the Gospel of John, whenever it is that Jesus is using an analogy and that analogy is misunderstood in some form or fashion, instead of backing off from it, what does he do? He leans into it harder and harder and harder instead of just abandoning it. And he does that right here and he gives this warning to the crowd that the rejection of his words and the rejection of his person, which again is what they've been doing consistently up to this point, the rejection of his words will ultimately result in death. That's the only option there. The willful rejection of the words of Christ result in death. Uh, This is to highlight the urgency of pointing people to Christ. This is to highlight the urgency of evangelism and someone confessing Christ. We need him because if we don't have him, Whatever else we do in this life, whatever else that, uh, that we make of this life, we will perish being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardness of our hearts. Whatever else that we make of this life, we will ultimately die and be separated from God's grace. So he gives this warning in the negative, uh, but then he continues with a promise in the positive in the very next verse, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, Now, these are bold words indeed. Uh, These are very bold words that require a lot of explanation. Uh, What's meant by this? Uh, What what, what is meant when Jesus says uh, that we are to feed on his flesh, to drink his blood? Uh, Very... um, Uh, powerful and intense language that he uses, perhaps the most intense uh, language that is ever used in the Gospel of John. Well, to answer this, what does Jesus mean by feed on my flesh and drink my blood? We've got to keep a number of things in mind. We have to kind of orient these, uh, uh, a number of things together to know what he means when he says, feed on my flesh. Firstly, we can say, at the very least, that this does not mean anything less than what he has taught up to this point. This does not mean anything less than what Jesus has taught up to this point. It doesn't mean anything less 
than what Jesus says in verse 40. If you take a look at verse 40, it says that everyone looks who looks at the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because these verses parallel each other, you can see the themes going on there, because these verses parallel each other, it means nothing less than that. Secondly, think of who Jesus is speaking to. Think of who Jesus is speaking to. Uh, Jesus is speaking to a crowd, again, who wants him to be a miracle worker. They want him to be a rabbi of sorts, someone who they can go to, get whatever they want, and then leave whenever they want. But that's not Jesus' intention for them. That's not Jesus' intention for them. It's never been the intention of the covenant of, of grace that the people of God would relate to God like this. Remember our theme, Jesus sustains us in how we need to be sustained, not merely in how we want to be sustained. What they're looking for, what the crowd is looking for, is a superman uh, who can fly in, right, and and just kind of fix whatever is going on, and then leave, and then they don't have to see him again until something else happens to where he could fly in and fix whatever problem is there and then fly out. What they need is an imminent Christ who pervades their entire lives, not a faraway Christ that they go to and leave whenever they want. So consider, secondly, who Jesus is speaking to. Thirdly, look at how Jesus refers to himself in terms of sustenance. Look at how Jesus refers to himself in terms of sustenance and necessity. Uh, Everybody's got to eat. Everybody's got to eat and drink. And so by referring to himself in the terms of human necessity, he's saying that we need him like we need our food. Again, in no less way than he's offered himself before. So consider how Jesus refers to himself. And fourthly, look what he says about himself compared to the manna in the wilderness or compared to the bread that he had multiplied on the day before. Verse 55 For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. When he says this, he he, he means that he, and all of him, all of Christ, both in his incarnation and in his atoning work on the cross, which is exactly what we should be thinking of whenever we see the word flesh there, we should think immediately, John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. When we see that Jesus refers to himself as true blood, we are to think what of his work on the cross when he spills his blood on behalf of sinners that he will redeem. He was, after all, called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we see this phrase, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. We're to think of, the, of his incarnation and his atoning work on the cross. When he says this, he means that he and all of him, both in his incarnation and his atoning work on the cross, he is the ultimate end, the fulfillment, the result of everything that preceded him. He's the best. He's the ultimate end. He's the goal of all redemptive activity. His flesh, uh, in in this way, is consummated food. His blood is, is consummated drink. And to believe on him gives life to the soul like food does for the body. And so putting all this together, feeding on Jesus, means to have a deep and abiding communion with him. A communion that's only compared to the 
frequency and necessity of you eating your food. Uh, We've been preparing for this ever since Jesus in verse 35 said those famous words, I am uh, the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What are you supposed to do with bread? Uh, You're supposed to eat it. That's how it is appropriated to the body. What are you supposed to do with Jesus? Uh, Well, you are to, to, to trust in him. You are to believe in him. You are to commune with him. That's how he is appropriated to the soul. Unless you have this with Jesus, you have no life in you, almost like you have no food in you. It's a closeness of communion with himself that he's holding out to them, whereas they just simply want to keep him at a distance. What he's saying for them is that he wants for them to have regular fellowship with him. This, brothers and sisters, is still what he wants from you. This is exactly what he wants from you even nowadays, and we, by the Spirit of Christ, enjoy this communion always because we belong to him by faith. And he even enhances his desire for them in our last point this evening, which he develops this idea of feeding on Jesus in this very last point, in abiding in Jesus. Verse 56, for our third point this evening, uh, brings out a theme in the Gospel of John that is not as easily drawn from the other Gospels, but is all over the place in the Pauline epistles, almost everywhere in Paul's epistles. Verse 56, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. I want you to see, brothers and sisters, the level up from the previous point. It's a serious and significant level up from the previous point and how this relates to the crowd that's in front of him. We've been stating for a a while that they, this crowd, wanted Christ to be distant from them. And when they disdain his teaching, they ridicule his teaching to the point of disputing about it, to the point of being combative about it, instead of answering them accordingly, what does Jesus do? Jesus keeps putting the goal in front of them. He doesn't answer them according to their dispute. He keeps putting that goal directly in front of them. He's so adamant that he wants a close communion with his people that he wants to abide in them and they in him. It's an abiding in each other. The communion fellowship isn't even supposed to be external anymore. It's not even supposed to be outward. It's supposed to be inward. Uh, This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of co-inherence or the mutual indwelling of Christ and his people. It's far more than uh, learning from him occasionally. It's far more than obeying what he says. It's uh, it's even far more than uh, love. It's far more than any of these things. Uh, He wants the communion bonds with his people to be so close uh, that really it's able to be compared uh, to the economy of the relationship between the Father and the Son themselves. As the living Father sent me, so whoever feeds on me will live because of me. He wants to indwell his people, and he wants his people to indwell him. This is what Paul means when over and over again he says, uh, he refers to believers by this phrase, 
in Christ. That's far and away the most popular term in the New Testament to refer to people who follow Jesus, what we know of as Christians. Paul will use this phrase of Christians, I don't even think he ever uh, refers to it, maybe once or twice, but he always refers to Christians as in Christ. There's a covenantal bond that we have with the Savior, uh, that all of ours is his and all of his is ours. We become the beneficiaries of the person and work of Christ because of the closeness of the union and communion that endures with his people forever. It's all ours. It's all ours by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, mediated by the Spirit of God. Uh, Christ dwells in you and you in him. I think it's for that reason why uh, every time the Gospel of John ever says this phrase, believe in him, at least every single time that I've ever seen in the Gospel of John, wherever it says the phrase, believe in him, such as John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him, quite literally the Greek means believing into him, believe into him, because the outcome of your faith, the outcome of your belief, is that he dwell in you and that you dwell in him. So it's not merely that we believe in him as someone who is uh, apart from us and that we can kind of you know, keep him at, uh, at arm's distance. No, we believe into him as one who mutually dwells in us and he in, 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 in him, in us and him. Of course, this is far away better than what the Old Testament saints had. <clears throat> While they still enjoyed the benefits of Christ who was to come, uh, they have it in seed form. Uh, They have these types and shadows that powerfully and clearly point to Christ, uh, while the fullness of the redemptive plan of God in Christ outstrips everything that comes before. Hence, verse 58, Jesus says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. If you look in your Bibles, you're going to see that there's a footnote saying that the phrase, the bread, in its appropriate spot in, is not there in the Greek, and that's why I didn't uh, read it. It's because That's because the manner of communing with Christ is that he is here. That's the way to commune with Christ. He's here now. He's here, and he's here to stay. He's here to be imminently with us, to dwell within us by his Spirit, to make us his and for him to be ours internally and eternally to be forever our God and for us to forever be his people because he makes his habitation within us. He abides in us and we in him by mutual indwelling. Yes, the fathers of the Old Testament enjoyed the promise of this, but we enjoy the reality of it. Uh, They had this food that pointed to eternal life and they enjoyed this, this eternal life thereby, but we have in Christ the true food Uh, We have in him the true drink, who is himself the originator of life. And whoever feeds on him, that is, whoever communes with him and abides in him and he in them, uh, this person will live forever by necessity. Because his life is ours, and our life is given to him. And really, when you consider this whole passage and all the redemptive themes that are found uh, within it, um, we back off a little bit and we see a huge picture of the Christian life, don't we? If we just back away, social distance a little bit from the passage and see the panoply of it, 
we see a beautiful rendition of the fullness of the Christian life that begins in election, uh, verse 37. And then verse 29, God grants us to believe. Verse 35, verse 54, we commune with Christ who is to us the bread of life. And Christ binds himself to us such that he indwells us in a relationship that's only able to be compared to the Father's relationship to the Son. And whoever feeds on this bread will be raised up to life everlasting. This tells us in long form what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The crowd needed this. Uh, And my guess is that we do too. Uh, The crowd needed to be reminded of these things, and so do we. We need a Savior who is with us through the thick and thin of all of our lives, don't we? Uh, Not just a rabbi who's accessible to us uh, whenever we want him to be. Uh, We need this, don't we? Uh, We need to be sustained in ways that we don't often want to be sustained in. Right, But that's not who Jesus is. That's not what being a follower of Jesus is all about, where he's accessible only on my whims. Uh, he's an imminent savior, uh, one who indwells his people, and his people do so with him. And so in conclusion, I'd like us to walk away with a couple of direct applications uh, from this passage. Uh, firstly, brothers and sisters, we are to regard the Lord Jesus as our dwelling place. We are to regard the Lord Jesus as our very dwelling place. This is the culmination of his message with the crowd, that he be the dwelling place of his people. And it's also in keeping in with the rest of the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, you have in Christ one in whom you abide, and he abides in you. If you belong to him, uh, he is for us the focal point of our communion with God. He is the focal point of our communion with each other. We have no recourse for a right relationship with God unless Christ takes up his residence in our hearts by faith. Uh, In just a few moments, we'll be singing a song, hymn number 657, where the first and last lines go like this. In sweet communion with thee, Lord, I constantly abide. My hand thou holdest in thy own to keep me near thy side. To live apart from God is death, tis good his faith to seek. My refuge is the living God, his praise I long to speak. Uh, This, what we're about to sing, parallels exactly what the Lord Jesus uh, says here. Without him we have no life in us, but within him we have life. And you know what the good news is, brothers and sisters, we are in him. And so regard him as your dwelling place. This means much more than merely regular attendance at church, though it doesn't certainly mean any less than than this. Uh, It means a comfortability with Christ. It means an attitude adjustment, a a, a, a worldview reconfiguration. It means that I have a longing to be with him. It means that I'm comfortable in his presence. It means that I'm at home most when I'm with him and he with me in communion. It means that the means of grace are second nature to you. Uh, That if I'm not in in, in the word, 
something is missing in my day. And, and, and that if, if, if you're not in prayer, something is out of sorts. You can't put your finger on it, but something just isn't comfortable anymore when you're not in prayer. You're not comfortable when you don't take the Lord's Supper. This is what that means. I was talking to some people this, uh, this afternoon after our fellowship dinner. Not being in the presence of the Lord is almost like not having our coffee in the morning. Something is not right about our day. We can't move forward unless we do this, and then everything is now oriented straight. Everything is oriented right. Not being with the Lord is like I'm not home. I'm sleeping in someone else's house. I'm not 100% comfortable. That's what it means to regard the Lord Jesus as our dwelling place. Not being with the Lord is uncomfortable. That means being with him, I'm most at home. This is what it means when the passage challenges us to regard the Lord Jesus as our dwelling place. Secondly, look like the Lord Jesus is your dwelling place. Look like the Lord Jesus is your dwelling place. And this means that your communion with him is such a pervasive and all-encompassing thing in your life that it compels you to to, to be like him, uh, to speak about him, uh, to ooze uh, the thoughts of Jesus. Those who have Christ abiding in them will experience in him a reality that impacts literally everything you do. It means that you'll be able to live a holy life. You'll be motivated to live a holy life with 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 true evangelical love for the things that God loves. And that means a true evangelical hatred for the things that God hates. It means that your life, your manner of life is informed and it's framed by the love of Christ and a comfort in being in his presence. Uh, So much so that you feel comfortable wanting to bring others into your comfort that you have in Christ. It means for those who take up residence in Christ, that now you have drives, you have desires to the glory of God and a love for mankind, not like the love that the world defines, uh, but a love that's defined uh, and a love that's exemplified for you by the revelation of God in Christ. If Christ is your dwelling place, if you are in him and he is in you, you won't be motivated by what the world is motivated by. Yours is a life of gratitude. Yours is a life of dignity, motivated by an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, whatever you do and wherever you go, look like the Lord Jesus is your dwelling place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we 